Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today is the author of A Feigned Madness, the story of undercover reporter Nellie Bly's 10 harrowing days inside a women's insane asylum in 1887. It won the Reader Views Reviewer's Choice Award and the Cops Featherling International Book Award. She's a member of the Historical Novel Society and the Women's Fiction Writers Association. She lives in Cincinnati, Ohio with her husband, three boys, and an overweight golden doodle. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Tanya Mitchell. Thank you so much, Julia. It's great to be here. Tanya, our opening question on Authors Over 50 is always, so what took you so long to write your first book? (laughs) I guess if I had to use one word, it would be life. (laughs) Life kind of gets in the way sometimes. I knew from a young age that I wanted to write books. I think my mom said I was about eight years old when I first told her that I wanted to write a book. So there was a big span between eight and 53, I I think. Um, I went to school, to college, to get a journalism degree because I had always loved to write. And I graduated and figured out really quickly because I had a, a minor in business that I could earn a lot more money in business writing and in marketing than I could in journalism. So I never did use any of my journalism skills, but I did a lot of writing for various companies. I worked for some toy companies. I worked for um, food companies and I loved it, but it still wasn't what I really, really wanted to do. So along that time, I got married. I had three children. And when we moved from Boston, where the kids were born, back to Cincinnati, Ohio, I had a big decision to make whether I wanted to go back to uh, work or not, because I was working full time in Boston. And my husband looked at me and said, you know, you're never going to get this time with the kids back. So while I decided not to go back to work, I was raising kids, but I had a little bit of time. And so I started writing short stories. And then I started writing short stories for publication just to see if I could get published. And I ended up winning a few awards. I got published in some anthologies. I got published on some um, online magazines. And I kind of proved to myself that I could write a good short story, at least good enough to be published. And so the children were getting older by then. And I thought, well, how about that novel? I I wonder if I have the headspace to do that. And so I tried writing my first novel and I never finished it. I was disgruntled. I didn't know what to do. And then around about the time um, that it was sort of halfway done and I didn't know what to do with the middle of it, I read a blog about history's outstanding badass women 
And I remember because the word badass was used in the headline. And it was a great blog about all these historical women who had done these fantastic things. And one of them was Nellie Bly. And so that's how I found her. And so I did a deep dive after that. And there was all kinds of wonderful information about her from a nonfiction standpoint. But I was looking for the novel because I wanted to, to read the novel of this fantastic story of this woman. And there wasn't one. And so if there was ever a tap on the universe from the universe for me to write this novel, that was it. And so that's when I took the deep dive and decided I needed to write the book. And I was by then, I think, almost 53 by the time that happened. So, Well, they say if if you can't find the book you want to read, you need to write it. So that's what you did. I did. I did. Once you knew you had to write this book, how did you proceed? Did you search for an agent? Did you decide to use a hybrid, a small press, or did you self-publish? I wanted to go the traditional publishing route. And I think the big reason was just my dream, again, since I was eight years old, was to walk into a bookstore and see my book. And I knew that probably wasn't going to happen with self-publishing. So I went the agent route and I looked a long, long, as you know, it's just a long, long time. The book was done. I had been out to beta readers. I thought it was good enough to show. And I did get an agent and she was wonderful. She happened to be a Nellie Bly fan for, you know, since she was in her teens, um, but she wasn't able to place it with any of the big publishers. And so we parted amicably and I went and got a developmental edit on it because I really wanted to figure out like, what was it with this particular book that wasn't lighting fires, you know, under under, um, you know, the editors at various publishers. And after I got the, the developmental edit, I made changes, I sent it out, and then I ended up getting a publisher almost right away. So whatever they did was magic. So one learning was to always get a good developmental scrub or edit of your book before you send it out. If you're looking for agents and publishers, because if I had done that, you know, I could have made that process a lot easier for myself. How did you determine the plot of your book? I know you did a lot of research about her, but how did you weave in the, the fiction? I think, um, well, as, as I said, the character is biographical and the story really happened. So the bones of the story were already there. What I did mostly was fill in those blank pages where history was sort of either vague about or hadn't talked about at all. So there are, for instance, women in the asylum who she doesn't talk much about. And maybe she doesn't even give a last name sometimes. And I really needed to kind of flesh those women out. And because I didn't even have a last name and a lot of those files now are long gone of, of, of those asylum patients, I kind of had to be creative. And so that's one of the ways that I kind of put flesh on the bones of some of the people in it. And I also um, wanted to put more about her life in it. I didn't just want it to be a story about those 10 days in the asylum and what happened after. I wanted to know why she was so desperate in the beginning to undergo something so dangerous in the first place. So thank goodness I did that deep research of who she was before she even got to New York City, because that added a whole thread that I didn't even see coming because part of the book, believe it or not, is a love story. It's not a romance. It, you know, it's about an insane asylum. It's quite dark in, in parts of it. But there's a whole thread of someone who came into her life as she began reporting in Pittsburgh and their relationship as it played out in New York City after she got there, which I really wasn't expecting. So 
Did you have to complete all the research before you began writing or did you do some as you went along? I probably did about 80% of the research before I started. And that included two uh, out-of-state trips that I took. I went to the Pittsburgh um, Carnegie Library, the Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh, because there were um, letters in the archives there that she had written to someone who was her mentor, who's in my book. And I wanted to see what their relationship was like back and forth. So um, I made an appointment. You had to have an appointment for the archives. And I read over those letters and I was so glad that I did that because it really helped flesh out her relationship with an older gentleman who really helped her become a, a really good reporter. I also, not far from Pittsburgh was the town where she grew up in. And I wanted to see what that house was like because before her father died, the family was quite wealthy and I wanted to see what the house was like. And it was actually a 10,000 square foot mansion in little Apollo, Pennsylvania. He was quite wealthy um, in the town. So I did that. And then I went to New York City because I wanted to go to Central Park because there's a scene there. I wanted to go to Bellevue Hospital because there's a scene there. And that, of course, still exists. And then I wanted to go to what was in the book, Blackwell's Island, which is where the asylum was. It's now Roosevelt Island because it got a major facelift in the 1970s when it was renamed. And wow, that was that was probably some of the best research that I did because I got an uh, idea of the scale of how big that island was off the coast of Manhattan in the East River. And what I didn't know was that part of the asylum, the main octagonal tower that's in the book, is still there. The, the dormitories are long gone. Those were torn down a while ago. But that building is now the lobby of a really awesome, expensive condominium <laughs> complex. But back then, it wasn't a great place to live. It was um, the island of the damned. It was where the workhouse was for the poor. There was a large prison there for men that was huge, an insane asylum, um, almshouses. Um, basically, if you were going to Blackwell's, it was a one-way one -way trip to hell. And I again, I just wanted to get a, a very close in view of what that island was like. And there are still parts of it that are still the old island. The, the lighthouse is there on the north part of the island, you know, little things like that. So that was that was a good bit of research. And I'm glad I did that. Well, all those trips must have just brought your descriptions in your book to life. Yeah, they did. They really did. In a way that I don't think just online research and looking at pictures could have. I could have done it that way, but firsthand, just seeing the scale of the scale and size of things really helped me make those, those scenes pop, at least I hope. How long do you think it, it took you to write the book? Forever. <laughs> <laughs> it took me, and again, I still had kids at home. Um, I was writing when I could. It wasn't every day, five years until I finally finished it. And that includes several um, read-throughs, editing, giving it out to beta readers, the developmental edit, all of that. So it was, it was every bit of five years. And I said, I told myself then, if I write a second one, it is not going to take me this long. I, I can't. I can't do this every five years. I, you know, I need to learn to get it out quicker. So, and so far, that's that's helped a lot. Do you have a second book in you? I do. I, I'm just now finishing up the edits. So um, 
I should have something done within the next couple of weeks. And I'm excited about that. It is also about another biographical character taken from the pages of history. The story is about a woman who was brought to trial on murder charges for um, poisoning her husband with arsenic and murdering him. And I landed on this story again, reading, and I just could not believe that I hadn't heard about this woman before. And so I did another deep dive and nothing has been written about her or this case from a fiction standpoint. There's a lot of nonfiction, but there's no, no fiction. So again, <laughs> I found, I found a hole, I found a little niche and that's, that's what I want to, that's what I want to do. Just fill that with the story. Well, that should be very popular. You know, true crime is just taken off and people are, yes. are so immersed in it. It is. There are so many shows out now and podcasts about it. I don't know what it is, but you know, I write historical stuff, but I'm just, are you a true crime aficionado too? Because I love that stuff. I get so sucked into all of that and I have really gotten into thrillers. So when I'm riding my bike along, you know, I have to look around and see if people are watching me gasp as I ride because <laughs> I get so into the story. Yeah. Yeah. True crime. It sucks me in every time, even just switching channels. If I don't even know it's on and I land on it, it's like, Oh, here we go. <laughs> Gotta watch it. Well, tell us a little bit um, about the section you're going to read from the book today and set, set the scene up and then read a few paragraphs to let us hear your tone and voice in the book. Okay. Um, Nellie has gotten over. She's crossed the water. She's crossed the ferry uh, onto Blackwell's Island, and she's now in the asylum. She's been there for less than 24 hours, and she's with the other women on her ward, the other so-called lunatics. Nurse group cleared her throat, a challenge in her eyes as they locked with mine. I said, naked. Never in my life had I been naked in front of strangers. It was unthinkable I was expected to be now. Forty inmates looked down at the floor, too frightened to meet the nurse's eyes. All but me were stripped bare. We stood in four rows of ten before a small tub. Motionless, dispirited, and so chilled to the bone, it might have been deep winter and not September. Crouched on a low stool beside the tub was an old shriveled crone with a rag in her hands, a dingy towel slung on a chair next to her. Low evening light filtering through the barred windows uh, through diagonal slats across tile that had once been white but was now gray and bore the scars of perpetual use. Yet in that miserable gray-white room where there were only the singular tub the rows of sinks and toilets and the ubiquitous tile, I thought those marked marks signaled something else. If one were to move one's fingers across those nicks and cracks and fissures like braille, they would tell the story of women who had borne witness to more than just bathing. They'd endured the crushing weight of hopelessness. A muscle twitched in nurse group's jaw, her pointy chin jutted in contempt. For the last time, remove your clothes, else I will strip you myself. Slowly and shivering as I did so, I stripped out of my chemise and stockings and let them fall to the floor. I had already unbound my hair, and so it covered my breasts, but that didn't stop group. Her eyes traveled down my body and back up again, her well-satisfied smile an indication of all that was Blackwell's. 
Fewer than 24 hours inside the asylum, and I'd already learned an important rule. Suffering was something to be brought forth and stoked continually, fed with the fire of a hundred insults, fueled with the sal- a thousand opportunities to humiliate. And that's very powerful. Very powerful. I think your trips paid off. I could see all of that in my mind. One of the things that I wrestled with was her her instructions going in from the editor were to just be um, a witness to what was going on and then to report about it after the newspaper got her out. But knowing how spunky she was after having read up, up about her, I knew that she wasn't going to be able to do that. And she didn't. She really did have to insert herself where she could to try and help these women all at the risk of exposing herself. And so that's really the tension in the book is how far she can go to help people without exposing who she is and ruining her chances of being a journalist in New York City. But that was that was that tight little wire that she was walking during the time that she was in the asylum. Is the entire book uh, from one point of view? It is. It is from her point of view, although there are a couple different timelines. There's a timeline going forward of her in the asylum and what happens when she gets out. But there are also earlier timelines when she met the young gentleman in Pittsburgh and him coming to New York City and how their relationship played out. And I, I didn't intend to do this, but I've heard from readers that some of the asylum scenes are so grim and so horrific that the break of going from that to the two of them as potential lovers was sort of a, a breather for people who got really caught up in the asylum scenes. So I'm, I'm glad that I did it that way. Yeah. I can imagine that. How did you decide to use first person instead of third or another Gosh. Okay. So I'm so glad you answered or asked this question. (laughs) When I first wrote the book, it was in present tense, third person. Um, It is now, as you mentioned, first person past. I had to really play with it. I wrote the book thinking that I would maybe have another point of view in it. Um, And then when I got the developmental edit and I was talking with the editor and she said, why don't you try a chapter in past tense, but tell it from Nellie's point of view in first person close so we know exactly what she's thinking. And once I had done that, it was like she came alive for me because rather than witnessing her, I was her and I was going through what she did. And it was probably the single best thing I could have done to make the novel really punch. So again, that's another learning you know, what, what voice, what, how many point of views, what kind of a timeline it's, it's all the structural stuff with a novel that is particularly for your first novel. You're trying to figure it out as you're figuring it out. You know, you're trying to write the novel as you're writing the novel and you have to ask all these questions and figure it out as you go along. I think that's very effective. And I think that sometimes first person, even in historical fiction can read like a memoir because you are, you know, in that person's point of view. That's true. That's very true. Tanya, what publicity have you done for this book? And maybe tell us something that really worked or maybe something that really didn't. Uh, Well, let's see. 
the novel pub my debut novel published in 2020 if that means anything to you. Enough said. <laughs> yes. So worst time to have a book come out, especially if you're a debut novelist. So um, I was on a group of 2020 debuts on Facebook and it was a, a um, closed Facebook group and everyone was just freaking out because everyone's books are coming out. It's just a group for debut novelists and nobody knows what's going on. There are people with big publishers there who aren't getting their, their ARCs printed because the presses are late. Um, bookstores are closed. Nobody knows what to do. Luckily for me, I didn't launch until October of 2020. So bookstores were figuring out curbside service and um, Zoom events in bookstores with the author in the bookstore, but no one else is in the bookstore or they're, you know, off location somewhere on Zoom. So I was able to do some events, but all of the, almost all, well, really all of them that were supposed to be in a bookstore just weren't happening, unfortunately. So there was that. Um, but because Zoom makes you available anywhere, I've done a lot of book clubs. I have appeared in bookstores. I've done a lot of podcasts like this one. Um, if there's anything that COVID did that was good for authors, it's make this sort of interaction digitally easier and easier to access for readers who who want to find podcasts and things like that. So it was really tricky and nobody was happy, but um, you know, what, what could you really do? You know, you, you did your best. We stumbled along and, and the following year, 2021 was a, was a lot better and I'm still doing events and the book's almost two years old. So. Well, that's what I understand. I, I understand that people are hitting lists long after that first year. So mm -hmm. it's encouraging to those of us who did uh, have books in the pandemic. Yeah, I was supposed to do several book festivals, book fairs, and those are now just coming back on this year. So there was a two year break and, and we're getting invited back to a lot of those because we weren't there personally. So um, it's, you know, it's, it's not all bad, but, um, I, I'm glad that the world has somewhat returned to normal. From your lips, what <laughs> was the best money you think you've ever spent as a writer? Specifically about writing and books. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say the de developmental edit, absolutely. But since I've already talked about that, I will say I just did a promotion um, with a company over in the UK um, where I agreed to give away one book in the States, the United States, and one book in England. Um, and it was a, it's a sweepstakes with me and seven other authors. So if you're the winner, the random winner, you get eight books. Um like I said, one for the U.S., one for England. And there is an option. It's not, it wasn't a mandatory thing, but there was an option to join the um, the writer's um, subscriber list for newsletters and things like that. And I wasn't really sure how well that would go. I'm not all that well known in England, um, but I actually got, I I got a lot more names than I thought that that I would get for my list. And I, I think there are people really interested in the book because the company only promotes historical fiction books. So I know they're, they're readers of historical fiction and because their sign up was man was not mandatory for my list. So they're just saying, Hey, I would 
I would like to be a part of your list. So um, I'm very happy that I did that. It was relatively inexpensive and I got a lot of followers now. And many authors will say, you know, you don't really, you don't really own anything, but your, your readers emails, because that's the way that you have that one-on-one communication about when your next book comes out, what you're reading, your next blog and things like that. Everything else is kind of tenuous because it's up to the publisher, but that one-on-one way to connect with the reader is what's key. So I was really, really glad that I did that. And I'll do it again next year if they offer the promotion. Definitely. That sounds like a great idea. Tanya, Last question of the interview, as always, our writers over 50 are a unique set. Do you have any advice for writers 50 and above? Um, I would say don't stop. Keep writing. Is that something that everyone says? Should, mm-hmm. I don't know if I should be more creative than that. But there were many times that I wanted to stop doing it because I wasn't well plugged into the writing community. And I was sort of working on my own, what felt like in a vacuum. And I kept at it. And the more I kept at it, the better I got. And the more authors I found, the more editors I found. I have a whole community of people now that know me and I know them. We follow one another. I'm in readers groups. Um, I met wonderful people through book clubs. By the time this next book comes out, um, I won't feel like I'm in a vacuum anymore. And I'll just leave you with the one sign that I found it. It's not particularly for writers, but it resonated with me when I found it. And it's a little note at eye level on my desk. And it says, proceed as if success is inevitable. And I always felt that if I thought about finishing the book and getting all the publishing done and and how I was going to do that, it was completely overwhelming for me. And I would, would want to stop because it was just too much. But if I just gave myself the next step in the process and got there. And then when I arrived there, I gave myself the next step in the process and got there. I found that by those giving myself those little breadcrumbs all the way through, finally got me to the end where I needed to be. So that would be my advice. Keep going. Don't stop and assume that everything is going to happen for you. I don't think we could get better advice than that. And I think those of us who are starting different careers long after our other careers are over, we've still got lots of time to write. I'm interviewing people in their 70s, 80s, even 90s who are doing beautiful work. So I think that's encouraging to all of us. And we just appreciate you being with us today and so happy to say that you're now one of our authors over 50. Thank you so much for having me, Julia. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.